Good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're super glad that you're here. Sorry about that little piece of equipment there. Um, I have some announcements for you. They're mostly the same as last week, um, but still super good to remember. If you weren't here, you didn't hear about it, you're watching from at home. Also, good morning, Eloise. Eloise told us that she would be here this morning, so we love you. We hope you're feeling better. She um, had a little fall, and she's at home, so, but she's getting better, and so if you think of, of it, you can pray for Eloise. She's probably just sitting in her chair right now going, Jen. Sorry, sometimes I get tired and my filter doesn't work and I don't think through everything until it comes out. So we love you. Hi, Cameron. I mean, I might as well just do everybody now, right? Little call out, little call out for all the can of hands. Hi, M. Okay. Wait, is she here? That would be embarrassing if I gave you a call out online and you're sitting here. Hi, Haley. Hi. Okay. I'm going to launch into announcements. Let's do this. Oh, Rick. Good to see you. Good to see you anchoring the back row there. That's good. That's good. Um, okay. How much are you squirming right now? Oh, not at all. <laughs> You like that? Okay. Love lived, baby. Love lived. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's the deal. Here's the scoop. Um, for those of you that gave financially to Brookview in 2021, your giving statements should have arrived in your homes this week. I'm getting some nods from some of you. Don't do that because I don't want to know who gives. Uh, that's weird for me unless you want to text it in and all the things and we could throw a survey up. You know, that's how we handle money around here. But um, if you didn't get one, that means we don't have a correct address for you or some there's been a hiccup somewhere and we want to straighten that out so if that is the case for you please email brookviewgiving at gmail.com and we will sort through that and get you what you need for your tax purposes um, because I know with COVID um, CARES Act and that kind of stuff I think that there are some bigger deductions that that people can take so we want you to be able to do that for your charitable giving um, and then the last thing is that we would love for you to fill out your online communication card. Um, we love it when you do it. Uh, we love it when we hear from you throughout the week, those of you that are sitting here and those of you that are watching from home as well. So I'm getting out of here. Well, this morning, I want to start by, by speaking to you guys from the heart a little bit. Um, some of you have, have wondered over the last couple of years and have kind of repeatedly asked Jen and I, how are you doing? Like in this difficult COVID season, what is it like to try to lead a church? What is it like to try to lead the church? Like, how are you guys feeling How's your passion level? Like, do you feel like your, your tank is full or, or are, you, are you running on empty or are you hopeful? Are you discouraged? 
how are you guys doing? And you guys have, have, I mean, this church has loved us so well for the entire time that we've led here. And so those questions just continue to come. And and I, I won't speak for Jen on this, but here's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you that for me, I am a mixed bag. My passion level goes up and it comes down. Sometimes my tank is on empty and other times my tank gets filled and I feel really, really full. Uh, sometimes I'm discouraged, but other times I'm really hopeful. And, and what I will tell you is that over the past two years, there is one thing that I have felt consistently, and it's just sad. It's just really sad. Um, there have been waves of sadness that, that have just kind of kept coming. Um, and for those of you that have been here for more than three years, and there's a lot of you in this room that have not been here for more than three years, and how encouraging is that? That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, but for those of you that have been here for more than three years, if you remember back that far, it feels like a different world. But you guys, God was really moving here. Do you remember? I mean, like for many years, Brookview was a, this gracious, faithful little community. We met in a, at Linwood High School, in a public high school for 12 years. And, and we were always kind of on the verge of not surviving. Like finances were, were down to the dollar. It was like month to month. And it just felt like this battle all the time. It took all the perseverance and energy that we had just to survive. But three years ago, God breathed life into this church in a fresh way. Like we got the opportunity not just to rent this property, but, but to, to buy it and own it and make it our own. And so we did a capital campaign and we called it Love Lived Here. And the goal was to raise enough money to be able to buy the building or at least make the, the necessary down payment on it. And then also to renovate it because this place was old and there was a lot of it that was run down. Um, and then to bring on another staff person to be able to take ministry forward. And then after all of that, to be able to put some money aside in reserve, because inevitably there will be things with the facility that need to be taken care of. And we don't want to be going, you know, month to month, right? So we did that campaign to raise the money. And, um, and, and, and as we did that, we spent a lot of time talking about vision, talking about, okay, well, why actually do we exist as a church? What, what is it that, that, that God could do through us? And, and what would be missing in our world, in our community, in, in people's lives if our church ceased to exist? So what might God do in and through us, and why, why does that matter? And, and, and then, like, we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. We prayed like we've never prayed before. If you were here, you're like, whoa, this is a lot of prayer. Yes. I mean, the board prayed like crazy. Our, our groups prayed like crazy. We fasted and did a week of prayer, followed up by a 24-hour prayer vigil. And when the day came, this was the cool part, when the day came, we raised more than enough money. Like, we bought the building, and then we fixed it up, and then we brought on another staff member, and all of that was amazing. But, but even more amazing, really, was the unity and the energy. I mean, we were, we were passionately unified around the mission of Jesus in a really fresh way. And in that season of prayer and fasting and just massive generosity, the Spirit of God breathed fresh wind into our sails. 
And we saw growth in that season like we had never seen before. Like, if you remember right, our services were just like packed. There were times where you, you know, we had standing room only. We're setting up chairs in the foyer. We're like, okay, when are we going to two services, right? And, and it was just, that wasn't just that there were bodies here. People were filled with energy and, and passion and anticipation for what God was going to do. And our life groups were growing at an insane rate. We like doubled the number of people that were in groups in, in one year. Um, people were stepping into ministry and leadership. People in our community were coming to Jesus and finding a home here. And we were expanding how we were doing uh, ministry and serving in our community with all these different things that we're doing. And it was unbelievable. Everything was just taken off. And you could tangibly feel God moving in this place. So this was the spring and summer and fall of 2019. And then 2020 came. Complete quarantine. Everything shut down. Zero gathering. Suddenly, you guys, I'm, I'm filming sermons for YouTube with no one in here. You want to talk about a life-sucking activity. <laughs> but I did it because I love you guys. And thank God many of you watched online. And our life groups tried to transition to Zoom, which was rough to say it nicely. And people were hurting, and people were afraid, and people were angry and isolated. In the toughest time that many of us have ever been through, we were cut off from each other. And it was all just really, really sad. And then, in the throw of all of that, you, you, you get all of the political tension, right? We're living in this new reality. Like We're right in the epicenter of rioting going on everywhere. My friend who's a police officer spent day after day after day going to riots and getting spit on and called names and, and all kinds of stuff. And there was violence and anger and looting and all of that. Like not very far away from here was the chop zone. You guys remember that? I mean, we were living in a whole new reality and it just felt so sad. Just the animosity, right? The hatred, the, the division. And, and like many of you, I had people that I deeply love in both camps. Some were so conservative that it was like if you, if you weren't a Republican, you were aligning with the Antichrist. Others, so Democrat, that if you were not a Democrat, you were a racist. And I had people that I loved in both camps. And I just felt torn up like this ongoing wave after wave of sadness. And here's what it kind of felt like. It felt like we had all been in this boat together. And we were docked and moored in this safe harbor and the number of people on our boat was increasing and people were happy and they loved being together. And suddenly somebody came along and they just cut us loose and all of a sudden we were like adrift in open seas. And it was like treacherous waters. The, the winds were howling and there were swells everywhere and our boats getting tossed all over the place. And so I felt angst and I felt fear and, and frustration like, like all of you. But in this last season, a thought has continued to occur to me. And the thought is this. What if being unmoored, cut loose from that dock, what if being unmoored might actually lead us to something new and it might lead us to something even better? 
What if getting back to normal is not that great of a goal? What if this season has really been like the opportunity of a lifetime to hit reset? What, what if part of the reason that we have felt so adrift is because in many ways, for many of us personally, our boat was moored to the wrong dock? Like what if, what if God is up to something massive in the midst of this? What if God has allowed us to feel and experience all of this for a reason. In fact, what if, what if God wants us to be unmoored from some of the things we were tied to before? What if pre-COVID we were, we were tied so tightly to like our temporal identities and not deeply rooted in our like eternal citizenship with our Heavenly Father that God allowed us to be unmoored to wake us up so that He could heal us and renew us and begin doing something new? What if we had grown far too dependent on the wrong things? And what if God is inviting us to re-moor, not to the old temporal things, but to re-moor to Him and His love and our eternal citizenship? So you guys, I've been thinking all of this stuff through COVID, and it's just been like, okay, wait, what if God is up to something amazing? What if renewal is coming? And a big question or a big issue that gets raised in all of this for me is, if pre-COVID, many of us were moored, like personally moored to the wrong things, then like, how do we get moored to the right things? How do we unmoor from temporal things and then get re-moored to our identity in Christ as as eternal citizens of heaven? Now, obviously, our example on this um, should be Jesus himself right? I mean, it should be Jesus. And so we will look to him today for sure. But sometimes it's hard to relate to Jesus because it's like, yeah, well, he's the son of God. So outside of the son of God, is there anybody else who really like lived this? And, and I don't honestly know if anyone else in the New Testament got this like the apostle Paul. Paul established the deepest roots in his identity in Christ, in in heaven, in his eternal citizenship. And you think about that well-known passage in Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes this letter while he's in prison for preaching about Jesus. And yet he's so encouraged by all that God is doing. Uh, So let's look at chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, he's writing to the Christians in the city of Philippi, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, like being in prison. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So he's like, here I am in prison for refusing to stop talking about Jesus. But my imprisonment is actually causing the gospel, the fact that I'm in prison is actually causing the gospel to be shared even more. He's like, unfortunately, I can't preach outside this prison, but I'm preaching to the guards. Like, they think that I'm their prisoner. Actually, they're kind of my prisoner. They got to stand here while I talk. (laughs) 
And I'm, and I'm talking to all the prisoners. I'm talking to everybody within earshot. And then he's like, and then outside the prison, more and more of the brothers and sisters are preaching Jesus without fear. And then he says that not everybody out there is, is preaching out of like pure motives. That actually his enemies are preaching because they think that by preaching it will cause him to be more persecuted. Others are preaching out of love and partnership with him. So verse 15, he goes on. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, like, think about the perspective involved in that last statement. I don't really care if they preach the gospel out of pure motives or false motives, like trying to get me killed. Either way, the good news of Jesus goes forward. And then he makes this remarkable statement in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you stop someone like that? Right? Like, like, what do you do? How do you, what, would you, what would you be able to do to threaten him or to, or to intimidate him? He has an, uh, he's, well, he's like just an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. And it's because he is so deeply rooted in his eternal identity. Here's the, the truth of, of the situation of Christianity in America, at least at, as I see it. We will have very little power for the kingdom of God if our roots are shallow in our eternal identity and instead we are deeply rooted and connected to our temporal identities. If, if we want to see the kingdom of God come among us, if we want to see peace and justice and faith and love come to our world, then we absolutely must get rerooted in our eternal identity. So like, how do we take real steps toward that? How do we re-more to our identity as eternal children of the Father? And let me just this morning give you kind of two main thoughts on this. And the first one is this. If we're going to be moored in our eternal identity, we have to detach from like our temporal false identities. We have to let them go. Uh, in Luke 10, Jesus sends his disciples out to do ministry like on their own. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing all the ministry, right? His guys have mostly just been watching, uh, maybe helping a little, but, but he, here he says those familiar words. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So he says, pray that God sends workers into the fields to harvest all of the fruit that's out there that's ripe. And then he tells the disciples to go, like to go on their own, to go out in pairs and to go into the towns and villages and find a person in the town or village that is a person of peace, somebody that's hospitable and somebody that's open to the gospel of Jesus. And he says, I want you to, to, to stay in that home and use it as like a center for ministry. Teach and heal and serve and cast out demons. I mean, like, can you imagine being a disciple in this moment? It's like you, Jesus is like, okay, you've been watching me do all this stuff. Now it's you. 
Go do what you've been watching me do. Go cast out demons, heal the sick, and set the captives free. Go. I don't know about you. I'd be a little nervous. But they go. They go and they do this thing. And when they come back, they report to Jesus how it went. And they're like, you wouldn't believe it. Like, wow, like amazing stuff happened. And they say to him, they're like, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus' response is interesting. He's like, yeah, of course. He's like, yeah, because I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. And then he says, however, he's like, cool your jets. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It says rejoice in your eternal citizenship. Now, that's like an unexpected thing to say, but here's what I think. I think Jesus understood that making our identity all about what we do, even when what we do is really good, and many of you do really good things, even when, even when it's ministry, even when it's about bringing the kingdom, can get us all wonky in our identity. If your identity is derived primarily by what you do, what can happen is you can easily forget who you are. It becomes about fruitfulness, becomes about success, applause, awards. And Jesus knew that no ministry is always fruitful. Sometimes you do all the right things and you still end up on a cross. Jesus couldn't base his identity on how the crowds responded, right? He had seasons where they welcomed him with palm branches, right? And they shouted Hosanna and people cried tears of joy just to see him. And then a week later, they yelled, crucify. He knew that the disciples would also face both extremes. So here's the thing. If you make your identity all about what you do, what in the world happens inside of you when you're not successful. Now, I felt this. Like, in COVID, man, did I feel this. Almost nothing worked anymore. Like, as far as ministries and the way we... We had spent years honing systems for how we did ministry at Brookview. Like, how we would share vision and, and how we would develop leaders and, and how we would form and build community. And suddenly, it all got blown up, like, in one day by a virus. And then more blown up by all the social and political tensions. I mean, like how in the world do you pastor a church that you can't gather? How, how do you help people love one another when they have differences? How do, you, how do you like mediate conflict when you can't even get people in the same room to talk to each other? What, what does it look like? For a, like what does success look like for a church in covid and all these things are flooding in. Like, am I, am I good at what I do? What, what if this circumstance kills our church? What if we don't make it through this? And, and who am I? And, and, and why do I matter? And what, what COVID has done is to kind of help unmoor me from this what I do identity. And here's the thing. As long as you're successful and, and secure, then it's really, really easy to tie your ropes to the dock of what you do. But that is a dangerous place to dock up. It is so dangerous. 
I mean, for two years, I, I have heard my father say to me again and again, I love you. You're mine. So no matter what happens next, I've got you. Like even for pastors, the temptation is to be overly concerned with what we do and lose sight of who we are in Christ. Um, Craig Groeschel, many of you know Craig Groeschel, pastor that I, I really like, was talking about his experience of this at, at a, at a, in a certain season of his ministry. And he said, I got to the place in my journey where I was a full-time pastor and a part-time Christian. It is so easy to become a part-time Christian. And this is why I think Jesus gives his guys this, this important warning. Don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't, don't attach your identity to what you do. Always, instead, sink deeper roots into your eternal identity. For most of us, the temptation is to make our identity about three things. It, it's about what we do, or it's about what we have, or it's about what people think of us. I mean, what we do, like the positions that we hold, the authority that we have, the things that we accomplish, how important we are, the lives that we touch, the good that we bring about, the positions, the titles, all of that stuff. It's, it's, it's about what we do, and, or sometimes it's about what we have. It's about having the things that say to our world, I matter. I'm important. It could be our car or our house or our social connections. Or it can be all about what people think, right? And we, we feel secure as long as everybody likes us, as long as everybody respects us, as long as they think well of us, as long as we're admired and as long as we're like cool and people want us to be around. But here's what's so dangerous about mooring your identity to any of those things. You can lose any of them at any time. They can just psh, evaporate. And so Jesus implores his guys, he pleads with them, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Now, you might be in a spot where you've just lost one or, or all three of these in some way. Or you might be in a spot where one of them just feels threatened. It's like, it's, it, it, and if this is where you're moored, if this is where you've been moored, then, then if that's the case, you probably feel like you've been set adrift. Like you've been cast into open seas and there's wind and there's waves and, and, and you're going to need to be moored to something. And if that's the case, maybe in this time, your father is calling to you and he's saying, I'm here. Like, I see you. Come to me and find yourself in me. It reminds me of the famous words of, of Jesus. He said, come to me. All you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my, yoke upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Maybe you are, are burdened, and you're in a spot where you need peace and you need Rest, you guys, this, this is something that we have to run after. This is something we have to seek. It's something that we have to chase after. And I think for many of us, this season has exposed it like no other. Uh, Paul writes, Paul writes this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. See, this is your identity. 
right? This is who you are. You are an eternal citizen. You are deeply loved. You are a child of the Father. He goes on, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You guys, Paul wants us to see that all of these things are temporal identities. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be about male or female. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be about Jew or Gentile. When, when you, it's not going to be about your position or your reputation. When you get to heaven, it's going to be about Jesus. And unless we make it about Christ in us and us in Christ right now, right here, then we're missing who we are. And it's been so frustrating all through COVID because in this season, I mean, in this season, think about our country. In, in this season, it seems to me that the, the church in America has demonstrated far too often that her identity is more temporal than eternal. I mean, I just sat watching, as many of you did, sat watching the battles wage in the churches in this season across the U.S. And can I just say, here's what it felt like. It felt like we were more American than we were Christian. It felt like some of us were more Republican than we were eternal citizens. Others were more Democrat than eternal citizens. Some of us were more white or more black or more Asian or more Latino than we were eternal citizens. Guys, all of these are, are temporal identities. Our one identity is as brothers and sisters in Christ, the children of God. And this is what unites us all together as family. We are eternal citizens of heaven. Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 14, he said, If anyone comes, comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Listen, Jesus doesn't hate your mom and dad. Right? And he doesn't want you to hate your mom and dad. He's simply saying, when you fully root yourself in your eternal identity, all other loyalties and identities take secondary position. Jesus is saying that if we want to be followers, if we want to be true disciples, then our identity in Christ must take precedence over every other way in which we might identify ourselves. So if we're going to be like moored in our eternal identity, we must continually detach from temporal identities. Okay, second thing, which is pretty obvious, is this. If we're going to be moored in our eternal identity, we must sink deeper roots in God and his kingdom. I know it takes a genius to come up with that. So how in the world do we do this? Well, think about what this is like for Jesus. I mean, think about what it was like. Think about the scene uh, uh, of Jesus when he was getting ready to begin his ministry. He hadn't even taken off. He's just getting ready. It says, this is Luke 3, starting with verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, okay, by John, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
Right here, the Father, in no uncertain terms, speaks identity over Jesus. It's not about what he does. It's not about what he has. It's not about what people think. It's just about the Father's eternally impartial opinion of the Son. He is well-loved. He is pleasing to the Father. This is his identity. But if you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and here's what's crazy. If you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke from this point on, every other point, everybody is challenging that identity. Like, the, the first thing that he does from here is he goes to the desert, right? And he's led by the Spirit where he spends 40 days fasting and, and praying. And at the end of that time, he's tempted by the enemy. And, and the foundation of that temptation is if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then turn this stone to bread. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself from this wall. His identity is what's being under assault. If you are the Son of God. Well, that's the very thing that he was just told. Right? But this is what the enemy does. He challenges your eternal identity. He, he's happy to let you sink really deep roots into whatever temporal identity but he will do everything he can to challenge your eternal one. The primary strategy of the evil one, and we've talked about this before, is what? It's lies. Just lies. I mean, so often people are like, man, I was driving to church and I hit every red light. It's just Satan. <laughs> okay. You know, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Could Satan do that kind of thing? I think so. But I know how that works. But I think his primary strategy isn't red lights. I think his primary strategy is lies, trying to get you to believe lies. He wants you to believe lies about your father. He can't be trusted. He wants you to believe lies about yourself. You are not loved, and you're not secure in the father. And he can destroy you with either one of those two ideas. And yet, despite all all that was coming at him, Jesus rejected both of those lies again and again and again and again. Like after the temptation with the evil one, I just get, it just goes on and on. Jesus, Jesus faces a hostile crowd. They reject his identity. Uh, Luke tells us they actually tried to kill him. Like, so he's in the synagogue, he's in his own hometown in Nazareth, and, and he stands up to kind of preach and, and, and read from, from the Old Testament scriptures, which is what rabbis did, right, in the, in, in the synagogue. So Jesus stands and he quotes a 700-year-old prophecy from the book of Isaiah that at his, like, by the time he was doing this, has been around for 700 years. And this was it. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they all knew that scripture. And they're like, right on. What a, what a great scripture. And then he says to the people in the synagogue that day, people from his home small town that have known him his whole life he says this 700 year old prophecy is about me and the people go crazy and they try to throw him off a cliff like you guys i have preached some bad sermons <laughs> you guys are so gracious praise god 
So, so his identity, it's challenged by the enemy, it's challenged by the people again and again. I mean, that's just one example. And as you know, it's challenged over and over again by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And eventually, of course, he's falsely accused and crucified. And, and, and the, the question that it begs us to ask is, how is he able to survive the onslaught of all of these attacks against his identity? I think there's a brilliant passage in First Peter that's so relevant to this issue. And really, this passage, I think, is so relevant to us in this season of COVID. The context of this passage is just waves of horrific suffering and loss. Peter is writing to persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire. And he says, you know what? It is bad enough when you suffer because you make bad choices. But when you suffer for doing good, that's, that's suffering on a whole nother level. And then he points all of us to the example of Jesus. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that last sentence, I think, is where, where the power is. It's the key to the whole thing. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself. Now, this is the exact phrase, by the way, that's used of Judas. When Judas handed Jesus over to his accusers so that he would be crucified. It's the exact same phrase that says Judas handed him over. And in other words, Jesus entrusted himself. He handed himself over to his father's opinion. He's being handed over to false, faulty opinions of himself. And Jesus knew exactly what to do with that. He handed himself over to the father who already had told him in no uncertain terms, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. You guys, the behavior of Jesus as he's arrested and accused and abused, as he is insulted and spit on and mocked and eventually crucified, to me is absolutely stunning. Because the peace, the love, the poise, like the emotional control. And Peter says the reason why Jesus made no threats the reason why Jesus didn't feel a need to defend himself, the reason that Jesus did not retaliate is because Jesus was so deeply secure in his father's eternal opinion of him. And often when, when we're insecure and defensive, that's a sign that we have rooted ourselves in an insecure identity. And when that identity is challenged, we we defend, we lash out. Jesus was so deeply rooted in his eternal citizenship that he feels no need to defend himself or to lash out. He just recognizes that with all of these people, and it's very sad, but their opinions of him are just plain wrong. I like the way uh, Christian author and speaker Rob Reimer puts it. Now check out the confidence in this statement. Jen and I just met him at a conference we were at a couple weeks ago. He does not lack for confidence. <laughs> this is what he said. He said this at the conference we were at, and I, I loved it. He said, when I am deeply rooted in my relationship with Jesus and my eternal citizenship, and someone attacks me, I realize that they don't like me simply because 
they lack discernment. Because my father loves me, and he has perfect discernment. That is awesome. Is that not awesome? Is that not worth, like, memorizing? You're like, some of you put Bible verses on your mirror in the morning. Put that on your mirror in the morning. Well, like, like, I mean, think about that. Like, when someone doesn't like me, if you don't like me, and maybe you don't like me, don't tell me, but if maybe you don't like me, uh, I can't take it because I'm really insecure in my identity. <laughs> I'm, I'm still working on this. But, but when someone doesn't like me, this is saying I can just chalk that up to a lack of discernment. You don't like me? Oh, that's just because you lack discernment because my father loves me and he has perfect discernment. And this is what Jesus understood. Like he really, really built his identity on this. He's rock solid in his identity. He is God's deeply loved eternal son and it's not about what he does, and it's not about what he has, and it's not about what people think of him. And so to close today, I just want to make this as practical as, as I can. And so let me give you a couple of just quick, like, how-tos when it comes to trying to, to sink deep roots. One practice that has been super helpful for me for probably a couple decades is this. Recognize that your unfulfilled longings are often just longings for heaven. I mean, one of the reasons that I have found myself so sad so often in this season of COVID is this, that you guys, deep down, here's what I'm longing for. I'm longing for heaven. This world is not my home, and there's a reason that I feel so out of place and out of whack here. I was not designed for this world, and so I'm not going to feel at home here. I mean, when people don't respect each other and when they don't respect me and when there's poverty and injustice and hate and inequality, when, when families are ripped apart and friendships are being lost and when it's just like tribe against tribe and, and both sides are, are eager to just villainize one another, when there's a lack of compassion and listening, when community is continually broken and damaged, you, what, what, when that stuff bothers me, it's a sign of something happening in my heart. I'm, I'm longing for heaven where one day everything will be healed and one day everything will be made whole. And so that means that I can let those feelings of sadness drive me deeper into my identity. I, I can let the sadness draw me near to the Father because he too is sad over those same kinds of things. And I can remember that this world is not my home. So question for you. What's, what's making you sad these days? What if that's just a sign for you that you're an eternal citizen? And what if when you feel that sadness, you just let it remind you of your eternal identity? Okay, one more idea that's been super helpful for me. When facing a challenge to your identity, when you're facing a challenge to your identity, ask, how would a deeply loved eternal citizen of an unshakable kingdom act in this situation? There's a simpler form of this, but, but I'm going to go with the complicated one. How would a deeply loved eternal citizen of an unshakable kingdom act in this situation? Many of you are feeling 
really, you're just feeling an onslaught of attacks on your identity right now. And because we tend to base our identity on what we do or what we have or what people think of us, this season has brought threats at us from every direction. And maybe you've been feeling pretty insecure these days about who you are. Maybe you don't feel like, you, you know, like what you do really matters very much. Or maybe you've lost your job or changed careers or you've retired or you've shifted something. Or maybe you're just not sure you're going to have your job much longer. Or maybe you're going back to school and it's, and it's really hard. And you just feel unsettled about who you are because of what you do or what you don't do. Or maybe you don't have what, what you think you should have. Like if you were really going to matter, you'd have, like, you'd have the awards, right? You'd have the accomplishments. You'd, you'd have an important title by now at your age. Come on. Or, or maybe you don't have the things that you think important people have. Maybe you don't drive the car. You look around and go, I don't drive the car. I don't have the house. I don't do the really cool vacations. That I, it's not me. Maybe you're the pastor of a small white church in Briar, and it doesn't look all that impressive to most people, and your dad's not impressed, and your father-in-law is not impressed. And maybe some of your pastor buddies have bigger churches, and they have lots of staff and way bigger budgets, and sometimes when you hang out with them, you feel kind of inadequate. I'm sure that all of you can totally relate to that one. Look, maybe you, you, just, you just feel like you, you don't think you, you have what you ought to have. You don't have the stuff that would indicate to the world and to people that you're, you're important. Or maybe you worry about what people think of you. Maybe you feel judged or, or criticized or misunderstood. Maybe you feel like somebody in your world is constantly looking down on you. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's other mommies. Maybe it's people from work. Maybe it's neighbors. Or for you, some of you, I mean, it's just horrific. You're in a terrible spot because you got like the trifecta going. It's all three of these things that are just coming at you in waves. And you, you, you don't feel like what you do is all that important. And you, you don't feel like you have what you need to have. And you feel like people are constantly judging you or looking down on you. What in the world do you do when you feel that kind of stuff? What do you do? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to sort all of that out for myself, but I, I know this. It is helpful to ask myself, what would a deeply loved eternal citizen of an unshakable kingdom, how would a, that person act in this situation? And maybe for me, instead of working harder on overtime to feel like, oh, no, no, I do really important stuff. Or maybe instead of striving and striving to, to feed my identity with what I have, or maybe instead of clamoring to try to get everybody to, to think well of me, maybe I can take all my eyes off of all of that for a minute. And maybe I could slow down and respond to the, to the simple invitation of Jesus. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This morning, my guess is that many, if not all of you, walked in here feeling some stuff. And some of the stuff that you're feeling comes straight out of your identity. 
Who are you? Do you matter? Are you impressive? Do people like and admire and respect you? Do they really? What if all that stuff is just like completely the wrong dock? What if mooring to that stuff is hazardous for your soul? What if God is trying to get you to unmoor to all of that and to re-moor to your identity as a deeply loved child, as an eternal citizen of an unshakable kingdom? So instead of like a, a closing prayer today, I want to close with kind of a, like a benediction of sorts. And um, to do this, I want to invite you guys to stand. And I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I think God just wants to pour his love into you. I think that God wants to speak your identity over you. And so I also want to invite you into a posture of receiving. It's just like arms out, hands up, palms up, hands open. And I just want to read to you the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth and earth and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.